Let's, uh, let's turn in our Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. We're going to be in verse 29. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 29. For those of you uh, that are maybe new today or you're just visiting, we've been going through the book of Ephesians starting uh, chapter 1, verse 1. We've been going through it verse by verse, chapter by chapter, uh, to get a sense of this letter that Paul has been writing to the church in Ephesus Uh, to see what God would have to say to the church on the coastlands in California. We've been going through it uh, for uh, a while now. We're right now in the middle of Ephesians chapter 4. And what what we're doing in chapter 4 is Paul is really speaking about what it looks like. He's in the middle of chapter 4 speaking about what it looks like to live out the implications of the gospel in community. So that's where we happen to be right now. So He's kind of just leveling off a bunch of different commands, but this is in relationship with one another. He's speaking about the implications of what it means to live like Christ, to live the gospel in a Christ-centered covenant community. And that's where we find ourselves in verse 29. But just to kind of get some context, let's just start in verse 22. We'll just read that whole swath together. This is what Paul says starting in verse 22. Says, you took off your former way of life, the old self that is corrupted by deceitful desires. You're being renewed in the spirit of your minds. You put on the new self, the one created according to God's likeness in righteousness and purity of the truth. Since you put away lying, speak the truth, each one to his neighbor, because we are members of one another. Be angry. And do not sin. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. And don't give the devil an opportunity. The thief must no longer steal. Instead, he must do honest work with his own hands so that he has something to share with anyone in need. Here's our verse. No foul language is to come from your mouth, but only what is good for building up someone in need so that it gives grace to those who hear. This is God's holy word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that there is a time to be ecstatic, to not have to be so serious about stuff, and yet there is also a time to be reverent in the presence of the living God. And we as a church, God, we profess together that as we open up your word, you are present to bless You are present in the midst of us. When we open up your scriptures, when we listen to the voice of God, you manifest yourself by the power of the Holy Spirit. And we anticipate that today. Pray for those of us that maybe do not have that excitement or that anticipation or or maybe just not feeling it today, that you would have mercy on us. That you would stir up an excitement for your holy name today. That we would look and we would see not just literature, not just syllables and words put together, but that we would see the heart of God manifest through the pen of people. That we would see in this, Lord, your will for our lives, and most of all, your love for our lives. We pray that we, in our hearts, would be changed by the renewing of our minds, that we would leave this building more in love with Jesus Christ and more desiring to glorify his holy name. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.
What's the first thing that comes to your mind when you hear Paul say, no foul language? No foul language. What's the first thing that comes to your mind? First thing that comes to my mind is that, as the artist has depicted in that picture. I think of like cuss words. I think of foul language. You know, I think of bad words, whatever those are. I think of expletives, those kind of things that that we're not supposed to say. That's generally what I think of when I think of foul language and uh, initially what I thought Paul meant when he said that. Perhaps that's what you think. And that is honestly not really what he's getting at. And even if that was what he meant, that would be really the convenient way out for a lot of us. Because if we were to read into this, at least my my own way of thinking would be to say, you know what, he's saying don't cuss. That's the, that's the depth and the extent of this word from the Lord. So I would automatically, I don't know if you're, you're wired like this, but I would automatically just list off in my head, not out loud, all of those words that I'm not supposed to say. You know, six or seven or eight of them. And as long as I don't say those, those, those six or seven words, I'm golden, man. I can move on from this text because it has nothing to do with my life. As long as I don't say that half a dozen words. But in order to get the real sense, the depth of Paul's meaning, you just got to walk into your kitchen and open up the refrigerator. Have you ever opened up the refrigerator in your kitchen and just, just smelled that one thing? You know what I mean? Like that, that stench in the refrigerator that you can't quite put your finger on. You know you left something in there overnight or for maybe a, a few nights, but it's in there. You don't quite know what it is. And as you progress, the refrigerator just starts to stink even more. And all of a sudden, it, it gets so unbearable that you just open up the fridge one day and you just start checking stuff. No, it's not the eggs. Maybe it's the milk. No, it's not the milk. You just start pulling stuff out. And then you start scrubbing the refrigerator, hoping to get rid of it. And it's still there. The stench is there. And then finally, you lift out of the corner that bag of salad from Trader Joe's. And underneath the bag, right, it's a half-eaten burrito, poorly wrapped in tinfoil. Oops. And so you throw that thing away. And yet the stench still remains in the refrigerator. It's like the smell clings to the plastic of your refrigerator. You can't get it out. It has soiled everything that it's come into contact with. That's more the meaning that Paul has in mind when he says foul language. In fact, the word that he uses for foul is literally uh, something that you would use to, to describe rotting fish or decaying meat. And he's, not, he, he's saying, in a sense, that the, the act of speaking foul language, and we'll get to what foul language is in a second, but the very act of speaking foul language has this effect on community. If you were to cultivate foul language, whatever that is, for a prolonged period of time, it has a decaying, rotting a putrid effect on community. It, it leads to a, a breakdown in community. He goes on in verse 29 to say, No foul language is to come from your mouth, but only what is good. In other words, Paul isn't saying, Hey, just refrain from the evil talk. As long as you don't cuss, then you're golden. He's actually going quite farther than that. Paul is saying, Not only should the Christian 
the one who is known by the name of Jesus Christ in community with other Christians, we shouldn't just refrain from the things that are evil. We should also refrain. He, he, he could use uh, the word useless. We should refrain from useless talk. In other words, Christian, I want you to open up the fridge and not just look for those things that are decaying and rotting, but look for the things that just shouldn't be there to begin with because they will rot. So what are useless words, Paul? Paul says, only what is good. He goes on to say, no foul language is to come from your mouth, but only what is good for the building up of someone in need. For the building up of someone in need. So words that have an edifying effect on people around you for the benefit of others. Meaning every word that should come out of my mouth personally at every point in the day should have a a a certain constructive effect on people around me. Paul would say in Romans 14 verse 19 a similar thing. He said we must actually pursue those things that work for the building up of one another. It's not just that we should not speak evil, but we should pursue words that build up one another. Jerry Bridges wrote this book called uh, Respectable Sins. He, He writes about those particular lists of sins that we sometimes take for granted and consider acceptable because they're, they're, they're not as bad as others. And he has a chapter in there called The Sins of the Tongue. And he's speaking in this chapter about, you know what, we, we usually think of really bad sin, sins of the tongue that we're supposed to stay away from, like gossip. Then he goes on to say, but as widespread as the practice of gossip is. However, it is by no means the only sin of the tongue In this category, we must also include lying, slander, critical speech, even when true, harsh words, insults, sarcasm, ridicule, and the list goes on. In fact, we would have to say, and this is what I I want us to hone in on, this is, in fact, we would have to say that any speech that tends to tear down another person, either someone we are talking about or someone we are talking to, can be considered sinful speech. So if we look at what Paul says and we look at what Jer- uh, Jerry Bridges is saying about that particular verse, a litmus test for what should come out of my mouth and, and any mouth of a person who calls out on the name of Jesus Christ is we should be asking ourselves, is this going to benefit or be to the edification of people around me or is it going to tear someone down? By that litmus test, perhaps half the things I say should never be said if I were to be honest with myself. Christians are called to use words for the creative benefit and building up of others. Now, I want us to be careful with this and not extremely hyper-religious, right? Paul isn't saying everything the Christian says needs to necessarily be positive, We don't need to be that person. Like everything that you say is just a positive. Like you you walk up to you and you're having the worst day of your life. And I'm like, hey, how you doing? Great. I got the joy of the Lord. Ah! (laughs) Things are going great. I'm glad to live here. My life is wonderful. It actually is awful. But I've got the joy, 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 joy down in my heart. Yeah. Like, Paul isn't saying, hey, be fake. 
Paul isn't even saying be positive. There actually is a way to be negative. Paul said that earlier when he said speak the truth, but speak it in love. There are times where we will have to confront each other in our sin, in our mistakes. We'll have to bring up harsh truths. Those are negative things, but they're true. They can be said in love. We don't have to be positive people all the time, especially when it requires that we are inauthentic and fake. Nor does it require that we be hyper-spiritual about everything. You know? When I was growing up, I remember this guy. I I don't remember who it was. But I remember as a kid, I asked him, I would ask him like, hey, how, how's your day going? And it didn't matter whether his day was good or bad. It didn't matter what question you asked him. Actually, the first thing out of his mouth was like this pre-canned, like pre-made answer for everything. Like I'm, I'm blood-bought, saved from sin because Jesus died and rose again, you know? Like, hey, how you doing? I'm, I'm blood-bought, saved from sin because Jesus died and rose again. Like it was always the same answer. Paul isn't necessarily telling us that we have to be positive all the time. He isn't telling us that we need to be hyper-spiritual all the time, or ever, for that matter. He is telling us that we do need to be beneficial. That can happen when things are negative. That can happen when we're struggling, when we're having a difficult time. He is telling us that we need to be beneficial and edifying to others in our speech that we do need to take every single word that we say seriously as if they carried weight. Because the Bible seems to suggest that for the Christian, their words carry weight. I read recently on Wikipedia, which we all know is the scholarly material. (laughs) I'm out of college, it's okay. (laughs) The average person speaks 16,000 words a day. Now, I want you to think not in terms of individuals, but in terms of our church. We have one church in three locations, different sizes, different places. Uh, Ventura Carpentry in Santa Barbara put together on the coastlands, 3,000 people that gather together and and share life together and worship together, 3,000. That means that our church on average, would speak about 48 million words a day. Now that could happen in context of each other on Sunday mornings. It could happen in your job place with your family, uh, out on the street during farmer's market, whatever it is. But I want you to think about the weight of what we represent in the coastlands, that we represent Jesus Christ on a daily basis with 48 million words What kind of atmosphere are we creating in the coastlands with those words? This is, this creativity with our words, this uh, ability to affect our environment is an element that we have because the image of God is ingrained in us. God was the first one to speak creatively. Now, he speaks it in an entirely different way than we do. He creates out of nothing simply by speaking something. All the way back in Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, when God said, let there be light, and there was light, and God saw that the light was good, and it was. God simply speaks, and he creates an environment. We speak to cultivate that environment that he creates. We've been given a lot of power, Christian. 
And yet, because of the fall, our image has been marred by our own sin. And we see the effects of our sin most vividly and most poignantly in our speech. We see the effects of our broken nature most vividly in the words that we say. And our speech, because of sin, is destructive, while God's speech is creative. The Apostle James would say in James chapter 3, verse 5 through 10, The tongue is a small part of the body, yet it boasts great things. Consider how large a forest a small fire ignites. And listen to this. And the tongue is that fire. The tongue, a world of unrighteousness, is placed among the parts of our bodies. It pollutes the whole body, sets the course of life on fire, and is set on fire by hell. Every sea creature, reptile, bird, or animal is tamed and has been tamed by man, but no man can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. We praise our Lord and Father with it, and we curse men who are made in God's likeness with it. Praising and cursing come out of the same mouth. My brothers, these things should not be this way. Evidently, the statement that I used to hear in elementary school, sticks and stones will break your bones, but words will never hurt you, is absolutely false. We can tear each other up with a twist of the tongue. And not only that, but what Paul would say in the little refrigerator analogy is that one slight word or one person who cultivates a, a way of speaking, it might be critical, uh, critical speech, just always critical about, about stuff. <laughs> got to go to church this morning. Guess I'll go to church. This guy speaking doesn't say the things that I want him to say, and he looks weird, and he's a funny person, and, a, and he's short, and he's got stuff on his arm. I'm done with this. And then you just begin to cultivate this attitude of like, ah, oh, my family is just, ow. Oh. The worship, I don't like the song he's saying. Where's the children's ministry? It's all the way on the other side of the continent. <laughs> Coffee burned my lip. And you'll start to notice <laughs> stuff like that is very contagious. I'll admit that when I hear people, especially in groups, begin to be critical, I tend to get critical. And it becomes very contagious. And if you don't watch yourself, and you open up the refrigerator and you leave that rotten burrito in the corner, it begins to catch. Tongue is full of fire. And a church like this can catch fire. And we, begin, we can begin to create a culture of critical speech. Or it might be gossip. We can create a culture of gossip. Whatever it is, our speech can catch fire. That is its nature. And in the meantime, tears people down. The problem behind our speech being so destructive is much deeper. You see, that we can't just create a sense of holiness within us. We can't see that God is holy in everything that he says and all we need to do is just speak better in order to be like him. We can't create holiness by changing the things that we say. We can't just cross out six words on our vocabulary and hope to be holy. It's deeper and much more needy than simple behavioral therapy, if you know what I mean. When I was younger, I had this uh, learning disability that required me to go through at least a year of, I think they called it behavioral or cognitive therapy. 
which essentially, it's different for everyone, but essentially it requires you exposing yourself to things that are difficult over and over progressively until you have conquered that weakness. Uh, They do this a lot with people who have phobias. So, hypothetical example, say you have a fear of bridges, right? I don't have a fear of bridges. I love all the bridges in the world. Let's say you have a fear of bridges. You would never step foot on a bridge. Behavioral therapy might consist of that person maybe just starting off with baby steps, right? Maybe looking at a picture of a bridge on the computer. They're like, oh. But then they, they grow used to it. And maybe, maybe after a while they start to progress and they, they get a toy model of a bridge. I, I don't know. They start playing with a model or something. And then as it progresses, they, maybe they, they walk across a two-by-four that's elevated like a couple inches. And so they're building their, their sense of uh, this weakness, and they're trying to get over their weakness until maybe finally at the end of the year, they're actually walking across the Golden Gate Bridge, and they've conquered their weakness. And that helped me in my young age, and it helps a lot of people, but it does not help the spiritual, the spiritual condition of anybody. Spiritual behavioral therapy does not work. Our problem is not our speech. Behavioral therapy doesn't work with the weakness of sin because our problem goes far deeper than the words that we say. Jesus would put it this way in Luke chapter 6, verse 43 through 45. I'll just read the end. He says, A good man produces good out of the good storeroom of his heart, but an evil man produces evil out of the evil storeroom. Listen to this. For his mouth speaks from the overflow of his heart. His mouth speaks from the overflow of his heart. You know what Paul is saying? Or excuse me, Jesus is saying? He's saying the only things that you will say, the things that manifest on your tongue, the things that manifest in your behavior are simply an outlet for what is already there inside of you. You simply produce what you're already made of. So if you speak a certain way, it's because you are a certain way. If you act a certain way, it's because you are a certain way. We can only produce and manifest that which we already are. It's an overflow of the heart. So our problem isn't really the things that we say or the things that we do or even our behaviors or actions or disposition. It is not a corrupted speech but a corrupted heart that needs to be ultimately saved by God. But Some of us... I, more times than I would like to admit, revert to a spiritual behavioral therapy often. And some of us have changed behavior in hopes of changing perhaps ourselves or maybe the way that God thinks about us. If I clean up my speech, God will look upon me with favor. Or if I stop doing a certain thing, I, I will be right with God. Or if I read my Bible and pray, you know, ten times a day, then, then things will be going good. God will reward me with happiness and wealth and uh, a good experience, so on and so forth. There are so many ways that we couch it. But ultimately, it's if I stop doing things that are bad, I'll start becoming what is good. And that is pure self-righteousness 101. If I change what I do, I'll start becoming what I want to be. The gospel takes a self-righteous statement like that and it flips it almost upside down. 
If self-righteousness is, if I change uh, things about me that are bad, I'll start to become what is good. The gospel says, by grace, through faith, in Christ alone, God has declared you to be good even though you are not. Self-righteousness says, I will change what I do in order to be what I want to be. God says, I will change who you are so that the behaviors will flow naturally out of that identity. And in the meantime, I will free you from those things that are bad. Someone might say, you know, if salvation has nothing to do with what I'm doing, if it's purely by grace through faith, if it is a free gift, then what in the world is my incentive to be holy? If God does the entire work by himself, where's my incentive to be holy if it's all by grace? What's my incentive? It's still grace. It's that feeling that you get when you realize that you are a tyrant. You are a tyrant that deserves the wrath of God, and instead of God's wrath, he gives you grace. Anyone watch Les Miserables this weekend? It's when a thief, a sinner, a convict, a loser, an addict, a broken rebel falls at their feet and expects punishment, and they get the love of God lavished on them instead. That will change how you act in this life. Nobody has to guilt you into that kind of thing. Salvation is by grace. Our incentive to be holy is still by grace. Then there's other things that come along with it. We obey. We desire holiness because we want to experience the effects of our salvation. Paul would say in Colossians chapter 3, verse 16, let the, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. <laughs> and he speaks about its effect in community. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your heart to God. You know what Paul is saying right there? He's taking what Jesus said in Luke. He's saying, if out of the overflow of your heart the mouth speaks, then God, the living word, will have his way with your heart. You just speak that out. You just let it gush out in community. This is really what Paul means in that first verse that we read in Ephesians chapter 4, 23. Uh, excuse me, 22. You took off your former way of life, the old self. That's really what he means right there. Putting on the new self is experiencing salvation which was already given to you. Back up in verse 23, he says, you are being renewed in the spirit of your minds. That's when God saves you by himself. But what follows that? Now you put on the new self, the one created according to God's likeness in righteousness and purity of the truth. Paul is saying, God changes your heart. You just put it on, man. You just adorn Jesus Christ in all, of his, uh, in all of his glory and all of his attributes. You just experience that thing that you found glorious at your salvation. And if you don't find the attributes and the characteristics of Jesus glorious, something is wrong. It might be that you have not made the connection of the gospel. It might, not, it might mean that you're, you're not saved because the fruit of salvation is that you see Christ glorious. 
You might not be able to do it perfectly. You might wake up in the morning and, and mess everything up that you, you ever tried to do. Your, your little checklist of Christianity, you mess it all up. But deep down inside your heart, you're like, I long for that. Jesus said, blessed are those who thirst and hunger after righteousness. For they shall be satisfied. That is a fruit of salvation. If that is something deep down inside you, you don't want the old life anymore. You want the new life. You are saved. Because that doesn't happen to anybody apart from the Holy Spirit. So we get to experience that. Paul tells us, well, put it on. You hunger for it, well, take a bite. You know, chow down. Your refrigerator is clean. Eat some salad. Second thing, we don't just get to experience our salvation. We get to become conduits of God's grace. God saves us by grace, we, begin to, we get to become channels of that grace to other people around us. Paul would finish off the verse saying, to do this so that it gives grace to those who hear. You're speaking in such a way that God could manifest his grace, his unmerited favor in the lives of people around you. What would this look like? What would it look like if somebody offended me? How would I react to that person who offends me? Well, if I want to put away foul language, that's easy. But if I want to speak good into them, who, uh, people who are in need, so that it gives grace to them, I wouldn't respond to their offense in the way that I typically would. I would first ask, well, how has God responded to me in Christ when I offended him in my sin? That's what I will do to this person. You have become a channel of God's grace to people who don't deserve it. Well, this person wronged me. How should I react to them? What should I say to them? Well, how did God react to you in your sin when you wronged him through Christ? Well, this person was faithless and let me down and betrayed me. Well, how did God react to you when you did the same thing to him in Christ? Changes our outlook on a lot of things. Can you imagine if we cultivated an atmosphere in the church just like that? People would come into it longing for what we have. Thirdly, we, well, first we get to experience the effects of our salvation. Second, we get to become conduits of God's grace. Lastly, we get to simply enjoy Jesus Christ in our obedience. You see, one of the fruits of being a person who is not saved is that you do not enjoy the law of God. You can do it all day long. You can try to obey the things that God tells you, but deep down inside you hate it. One of the biggest fruits, one of the initial fruits of your salvation is that for the first time in your life, you love to obey what God says because you trust him, because you love him, because he is your father, and because you see his eternal purpose involved in your life, that his law is to craft into you that which is perfectly human. That he tells us what to do because he created us in his image and he wants us to be fully human. For the first time as Christians, we love to do what God says. So we obey to enjoy Jesus Christ. And the richest way to enjoy Christ is to be conformed to his image. To be fully human. Paul would say, and I think this is about the most vivid way that you can possibly put being conformed to the image of Christ 
Galatians chapter 3, verse 19 and 20, I have been crucified with Christ. Meaning I put away that old life that I used to live. I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live. But Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. My life is being lived in union with the God of creation. No better way to live. For the saved person, holiness becomes the most attractive thing that you have ever known. And even though you cannot secure it perfectly in this life, you long for it. That becomes your motivation. That becomes your drive. That becomes your passion in life. But before that ever happens, there's rotten fish in the refrigerator. Before that happens, God must first speak into our lives a new word. Some of you in this building need a new word spoken into your life today. Perhaps for some of you, you have never known Christ in a, salvation, uh, in a, a saving way. You need the word of Christ to be manifest in your life. It needs to become real for you. Paul would say in Romans, uh, I believe it's chapter 10, verse 17, faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of Christ. There's that moment where you hear what the gospel is, but it just becomes real to you. And in that moment, you just want Jesus. Others, you're Christians, you've been doing this for 20, 30, 40, 70, 100, 200 years, feels like, maybe. But it has not changed your life. And I'm telling you, brother and sister, not with any guilt trip or any condemnation, that that is a sorry way to live this life. When the God of the universe stepped down into your mess and said, I have come to break your chains. It is a ripoff to then claim Jesus Christ and say, I am going to keep my foot back in the old door. You know what? I love the rest of the stuff that's going on in, in this pantry, but uh, you know that, that burrito in the back that's molding is kind of decorative. I'm just going to keep it there. God is... A... God's jealous for you. You ever thought about that? Exodus tells us that God is a jealous God. Not with the jealousy that we have that's sinful, like, I wish I could have that. It's jealousy with a fiery love for people that he does not want to give up to lesser idols. And he looks at some of you and he says, some of you love me with your lips and on Monday you will serve every idol that comes your way. And I will not stand for that. Not because I'm the Grinch of Christmas and New Year's, but because I love you too much to let you go. And there's got to be a point where that moves you. To you Christians in this room that have been living lesser lives than your identities call you for, the Holy Spirit wants to break you out of that mess right now. Don't go into Monday morning settling for a lesser way to live. Some of us need a new word today. Some of us trying to resurrect the old life that the gospel has killed. And maybe that's reflected in the words that we say. Maybe we are critical. Maybe we are angry with our speech. Maybe we have foul language of any sort. The list is, uh, is hard to exhaust. You, you know what it is. 
You know what it is to speak in a way that tears other people down. Maybe somehow it's tied into our old identity in a guilt-inducing way. Maybe some of you are still insecure about your past. Maybe some of you in this room have done things that are so bad that you just can't shake it and you're still acting out of it. Maybe you're trying to be religious in order to make God feel like he he did a good thing in saving you. That ain't going to work. God saves by his lonesome. And he wants you to let your old identity go. And some of us in this room, all of us in this room, have an old identity that at some point in this life we got to let go. That's not who you are anymore, Christian. Paul would look at the church in Corinth, messed up church. Think we got problems? They got problems. He looked at them and he, he, looked, at, he looked at the situation in Corinth at a church there that was suing each other, Christians suing each other, Christians cheating on each other, Christians sleeping around with each other, Christians saying things about each other behind their backs, Christians being unjust, and he was undone. And Paul comes in and he rebukes them truth in love. He does not say, he does not give them some religious, phony, therapeutic, you know what, you're okay, just as long as you feel good about yourself. Which is most of the garbage you're going to hear out there. He comes in and he throws down an anvil because first, before we're saved, before we can experience salvation, we've got to recognize our need to be saved. He steps in and he says, don't you know that the unrighteous will not inherit God's kingdom? Just slap in the face. And then he just starts to list off everything that they're struggling with. Don't be deceived. No sexually immoral people, idolaters, adulterers, anyone practicing homosexuality, no thieves, no greedy people, no drunkards, no verbally abusive people, there's the sins of the tongue, no swindlers will inherit God's kingdom. And like a blow to the gut, he condemns everybody with the law. But here's where the gospel comes in. He looks at those who put their faith in Jesus Christ and I will repeat his words to those of you who have put your faith in Jesus Christ in saying some of you used to be like this. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God and that is not who you are anymore. And when we go into January and when we go into 2013, I want you, for the love of all that is holy, to put on your new identity, even if you screw it up every day for the next 20 years. You put it on because it has been well deserved, not by you, but by Christ on a cross. And it's yours. Salvation is first experience when you come to see you're beyond saving yourself. It's when we think that we've got something to offer God that it usually gets a little tricky. It's when we've come to the end of ourselves that salvation tastes so good. Maybe you're at that point this morning. Maybe you can't control your tongue because you, you can't control your heart. Perhaps your heart this morning is ravaged by idols of all different sorts. God wants to break every work of the devil. He wants to break your chains Do you see in yourself an unbearable sin? That's a good starting point. Do you see in God all that is good? That's another good starting point. 
When you've gotten to that place where you are helpless in and of yourself, rush to Christ as the only one who can save you, but, and this is for the Christians, the only one that can preserve you and carry you until that day where you will be presented spotless. You're only going to make it with Jesus Christ as your Lord and as your Savior. Put your trust in Him for your sanctification. And when He begins to change you, embrace it. Because God is keeping His promise to His people. I make all things new. He starts with His beloved people. Heavenly Father, underneath our our behaviors this morning are deeper issues. We get that. But for maybe most of us, we don't know how to handle those deeper issues. We're all about behaviors. We're professional behavior modifiers. So Lord, by your great mercy, deal with the deep issues of our hearts this morning. We don't want to go into the new year being held down by the past, being held down by foreign weights, being entangled by sin so easily. We want to go into the new year with joy set before us. So we pray that you would deal with those deep issues, not just individually, but collectively as a church. That there would be and exist nothing to keep us from you, God. We want to know you and we want to be known by you. So Lord, become our new and eternal obsession this morning. Become that which set our hearts aflame. Become that which causes our hearts to burn with gladness so that when we open our mouths on Monday, it might be plain to the world that our mouths are lined with a holy joy. Quench our thirst today, God. Be glorified in our midst. In Jesus' name, amen.